Welcome to another episode of the Sound in Worship podcast. I am not your host, Justin Ray. My name is Brian Emerson, and I am actually one of the hosts of the Balm and Gilead podcast, along with Justin and our friend Grant. Um, If you listened to our April Fool's Day episode of this podcast, uh, you will have heard my voice before. I was the self-motivational speaker that delivered the song for Raise a Hallelujah. And as you know, your good friend Justin has just had a baby. Technically, his wife had the baby, but Justin gets to hold the baby. So, I mean, I guess that's how it works, right? Uh, I've only had six myself, so I'm still trying to figure that one out. Um, But he has asked me to come and do a couple episodes so that he can maybe hopefully get a little bit of rest um, before jumping back into giving you the same regular weekly content that you have grown to appreciate. So this time I'm not going to do a satire episode about a song, but I am going to go over a a song that is less than right theologically. Um, Instead of doing the, uh, taking it like a joke, doing the uh, motivational speech, I'm just going to go line by line through the song and uh, talk about what was good, what was not good, uh, what was right, and what was almost right. But first, I want to talk about good old Chuck Spurgeon. Uh, You may be aware of him. He was a London Baptist preacher back during the time of the American Civil War. Um, nobody called him Chuck. His name is Charles, Charles Spurgeon. But he has many, many quotes, many great quotes uh, attributed to him, some about beards and pancakes. But this one is probably one of my favorite. It says, um, discernment isn't telling right from wrong. It is telling right from almost right. You see, a song can be completely off base. And that's not as bad as being almost right. Because being almost right means that you've convinced people that it's right to a degree. And so what's wrong in it is even more compoundly wrong because people are convinced that it's right. Something that is blatantly wrong, you know is wrong. But something that's almost right, you, you need to exercise your discernment to be able to determine that. And, and that's what we're doing today. We are going over the song Resurrecting by Elevation Worship. Um, And I will warn you that there are lines in this song that are completely right. And that's why the songs that are almost right, the words, the lines that are almost right are so dangerous. So I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to read through the first three verses, and then I will uh, go through the chorus and the bridge. And we're going to spend most of our time in this episode talking about the chorus and the bridge. And I'm going to warn you now, that this is going to be a two-part episode. I'm going to spend two full episodes talking about this one song because I think it is that important. So let's get into it. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. The Savior knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow. These lines contain beautiful poetic reversals that completely align with scripture. They teach us Christ's humility and his submission to the Father's will. They also teach about Christ's kingship 
and how we ought to submit to him. This reversal and much of the rest of the song should draw us to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, uh, which says in the ESV, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at his name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the next verse it says, The one who wore our sin and shame, now robed in majesty, the radiance of perfect love, now shines for all to see. In the first two lines especially, they contain another poetically rich and theologically right reversal, teaching us that we are the guilty party, but that Christ took on our guilt. And the last two lines, they're really the first filler lines in the song. They're not wrong, uh, and I wouldn't even call them almost right. Uh, They don't contain anything wrong in them. But just poetically, uh, they fall very short from uh, from just the richness of the the first six lines of the song. And quite honestly, if that was it, if that was that was the worst that the song had to offer, it would be fine. Um, but I'm going to continue, and I'm actually I'm going to skip the chorus. I'm going to go straight to the third verse, and, and I'll talk about the verses a little bit more before getting into the chorus and bridge. Verse three says, "The fear that held us now gives way to Him who is our peace." His final breath upon the cross is now alive in me. Again, we have more beautiful and rich poetry uh, about the power that Christ has over our emotions. And through a play on words, we see Christ's power over our physical lives as well as our eternal lives. All in all, out of the, these first 12 lines, 10 contain very, uh, very rich uh, reversals. Uh, the first yeah, five couplets. Um, reversals that really point us to Philippians 2. And they also, they pull from multiple areas of scripture. And the other two lines, as, as I mentioned, they're not completely, they're not as solid. They're not as beautiful, but they're, but they're not wrong at all. Like they would, they would be completely fine if that was, you know, the worst part of the song. Sometimes you just need a good rhyme. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard to get the good rhyme. You know, as we will soon see, the song takes, it takes a really, negative turn in the chorus and in the bridge. And it's also important to remember that this bridge and chorus, they, uh, they get the brunt of the airplay because this is an elevation song. They'll sing the verse one once. They'll sing the verse two once. They'll sing the chorus once. Then they sing verse three and they sing the chorus and then the chorus again. And then maybe the chorus again. And then the bridge, they might sing the bridge two, three times before going back to the chorus and then repeating the chorus several more times. And as Babylon B says it, uh, the chorus bridge infinity loop where eventually they'll have to call EMS to come take the music minister take him to the hospital so that everyone can go home. Um, one of my favorites, by the way. And so those are the, these are the lines that I'm about to read that get the most play. And because they're repeated, you're going to remember them the most. You're going to get, they have more importance placed upon them poetically because they're repeated so much. 
And, and these lines are not good. I'm just warning you now. They're not good. So let me go ahead and read the chorus. This is the chorus. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. And the first impression is that these lines, they're significantly emptier than any of the other lines in the first verses. Even those weak filler lines, th- these lines, they're emptier. There's no poetry in them. They abandoned the poetry for whatever reason, and um, there's just nothing there like artistically. But there are also there are fewer lines in the chorus than in any one verse. And that's going to compact the emptiness. Because there's four lines in each verse, and there are only two lines in the chorus, uh, it's just going to compact how empty that is. But it's also going to increase the significance of each word. It's because there's half as many words in the chorus than there are in the verses. You're going to pay attention to each word more. And also, as I mentioned, the repetition, you're going to pay attention more and more and more. And I'm not going to unpack these lines just yet. I'm going to go onto the bridge, and then I'm going to look at all of the lines of the chorus and the bridge together. The bridge says, By your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. In your name I come alive to declare your victory. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Um, The performance of the bridge is very chant-like, and it's extremely driving and building. It's repeated multiple times before going back into the chorus just to pound in each word. Uh, The second and the fourth lines are the same, and they contain the title of the song. And uh, this helps to draw even more importance to these specific lines. So now we're going to unpack all of that. We're going to talk about this for uh, for the remainder of of the episode. The first line of the chorus and the third line of the bridge are very similar, uh, with the latter building off of the former and adding in the concept of the resurrection. Ultimately, this is the crux of the climax of the song. The final reversal of the song, if you will, is that Christ's name is victorious over our defeat. This is where the song starts to unravel. First, given the context of this song alone, we don't really know what we have victory over, and what defeat we are rising from. We have a passing reference to sin, but it's tied more to the emotion of shame than the legal concept of guilt. Uh, Instead, the real defeat in this song, using just internal context, seems to be death, which is still a biblical concept. In Hosea 13, 14, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, we see the familiar line of, you know, death, where is your sting? But uh, the power of Christ's name in the context of victory over death, it's absolutely skipping a step or two in redemptive history. We have no mention of our ownership in the cross or in our response in repentance and faithful obedience as followers of Christ. In Philippians 2, we see a picture of that final day when Christ comes down to destroy his enemies. Every enemy of God, along with every one of his children, will either declare or admit that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how his name is victory, as well as how all praise will rise to him. However, This song, as well as much of CCM, seeks the blessings of the cross without fully realizing the reason for the cross. I am a willing, an active, rebellious God denier 
who would have yelled, crucify him, right along with everybody else. To quote C.J. Mahaney, who in turn was quoting John Stott, says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The old Negro spiritual asks, and we must answer, yes, we were there, not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, denying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt would be futile. And here's where he's quoting John Stott. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Only the man or woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share of its grace. So I ask again, victory over what? If the answer is death, then how is his name victory? If his death, his burial, and his resurrection, then how is that victory mine? This song cannot answer this incredibly important question. Instead, it holds the reward on a stick and sets it out in front of the singer as a means to motivate a works-filled life. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back the truck up, you're probably thinking. Brian, that is quite a leap you just made there, and, and I'll admit that it is. But think about it. If I am not taking ownership of the cross through admission of guilt and daily repentance, then how could the victory of the cross ever be applied to me? This is where you have to know your heterodoxy and heresy. If you believe that Christ came to save, you must believe one of the following. Christ came to save everyone, which is called universalism. Christ came to save all who have a general faith. So all who quote unquote believe in something that's called inclusivism. Christ came to save all who claim Christ but with no necessary human responsibility. So Christ came to save me and I don't have to do a dang thing ever. That's called antinomianism. Christ came to save all who claim Christ and also follow the law. Uh, That is called legalism. And it's also, I'm calling this the legalism Pelagianism spectrum. We'll get more into that in a little bit. Uh, And then finally we have Christ came to save all who rest in Christ's completed work and prove their faith by following all of Christ's commands. This is called biblical Christianity. Uh, go read James. Go read Romans. Go read, uh, go read 1 John. All of it is saying, follow what Christ said. Follow what Christ said. Follow what Christ said. You can't have faith without works. It's, it, it's not the same as saying that you're not saved unless you do works. It's if you are saved, you will do works. And if you don't do works, you are not saved. And that those are very important concepts to get right because it's a matter of being right or almost right. And though this song seemingly hits at inclusivism with the line, all praise will rise, uh, I do believe that that particular statement, it's a poor interpretation of Philippians 2, because not all who say that he is Lord are praising him. I would actually say that most are just simply admitting it. They're they're saying it as as surrender. You know, I've been beaten, I've been bested, and now I have to admit it. He is Lord. And, you know, while the first verses do highlight the work of God, 
the chorus and bridge that don't. There's not anything in the chorus or the bridge that really highlights the work that, that Christ has done or the work that God or the Father has done. And the line that really gives everything away is the third line in the bridge, in your name, I come alive to declare your victory. So I declare your victory. This is a work that seeks to invoke a response from God. I am declaring X in order that you would extend your victory to me. So this would be on the legalism spectrum. Otherwise, it would say something like, in your name, I come alive and believe your victory. Though I personally would probably stay away from the topic of victory because it really has this name it and claim it vibe. Uh, it seems like one of those buzzwords that NAR theology really throws around. And, and so I try to stay away from that word unless, unless I am going to be very clear about what I mean. So I mentioned something called Pelagism earlier. And so in a nutshell, Pelagius, he was a Roman monk and uh, he taught some really interesting things. In, in a nutshell, it's that we can be good on our own uh, but we have Christ on our side if we need him as a crutch. Uh, but usually using the crutch, it really, really makes you look bad. So, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be perfect already. We could probably do a whole episode just on the nuanced differences between legalism, Arminianism, semi-Pelagianism, and then full-blown Pelagianism. But I, I am going to say now, uh, and you know, we can do some research into this later. I do follow if we need to, but Many of Stephen Furtick's teaching, they really push the line of semi-Pelagianism and sometimes even into the full-blown. So he has a uh, history of kind of teaching in this particular, uh, in this particular realm. Uh, another guy, Charles Finney, he's one of the Great Awakening preachers. He was known to teach full-blown Pelagianism, and it led many into an ethics-based salvation that one— uh, created a positive culture of marriage and family, but two, didn't root, quote unquote, following the law into a uh, working out of your faith. And ultimately, it frustrated many into leaving the church altogether. And ultimately, where our culture is now is a direct result of building that house of morality on, uh, on Sandy Foundation. It crashed, it fell, and now we are where we are because of it. And how great is that fall? I know that some people listening probably think that I'm reading too much into the writing or making an argument where there really isn't one. That just isn't the case. There are some serious problems with the way the chorus and the bridge are worded, and they raise some big questions, some of which we've already addressed, but I'm going to kind of sum it all up in this. What is Christ's name victory over? Whose praise is rising? What has previously defeated me? And by what authority do I get to declare victory? We can make some assumptions and theological leaps, albeit much smaller leaps than in some other songs that I've heard before. So you know, that's at least got that going for it. But these are big questions with no real answers. And the songwriters leave us to answer them with whatever theology we bring to the table from outside the song. But with all the pieces put together, I believe that this song does teach you to invoke Christ's name in order to gain victory over whatever it is you want spiritual victory over. As I said, it holds the reward on a stick and sets it out in front of the singer 
as a means to motivate a works-filled life. So I've already spent uh, a pretty good deal of time talking about this one particular point. And that's because it's a major, it's a major point that has infiltrated much of the contemporary church music. But I do have some other issues that I want to point out as well. And we are at about 22 minutes going into this particular episode. And I don't really want to make you listen to me speak for about 45 minutes to an hour at once. If you want to do that, you can go check out my podcast, The Balm and Gilead, where we do talk for a very long time. But I kind of want to honor Justin's uh, format here. And so I'm going to wrap this particular episode up and... uh, and we'll get into the rest of it next week. So I'm going to discuss three particular issues that I find that are kind of related, but they have some some different nuances to them. So uh, for that, I will say we will see you next time on the Sound in Worship podcast. Thank you so much for filling in, Brian. And now it's time for me to go back to sleep.